Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Emmons. Hello, this is Dr. Kevin Emmons, your host for Walk Talk. Parastomal hernia development can be a complication for a patient with a stoma. In this special bonus episode of Walk Talk, I sit down with Jan Caldwell to discuss this complication and the content presented with her colleague, Dr. Hyman, at their WOC Next 2019 session titled Peristomal Hernias, a Surgeon and WOC Nurse Perspective. This session was presented on-site at the WOC Next 2019 conference and was also presented as an official WOC Next 2019 education rebroadcast. The rebroadcasted webinar and this podcast were both supported by an educational grant from Hollister Incorporated. Jan, thank you for joining me today. Sure, my pleasure. One of the great things about your talk was this great collaborative relationship you have with Dr. Hyman. I know all of us sit in the audience and think, I wish I had that with every single physician I worked with. So you're very lucky. (laughs) I totally agree. And it's definitely something that you develop mutual kind of respect. And I feel very lucky that I am working with a whole surgical group, actually, that sees WOC nurses as their colleagues. So it's a great relationship. Thank you for noticing it. Yeah. And how long did it take you to build that relationship? Was it kind of instant when they saw your incredible skills or did it take a little bit of time to kind of get your foot in the door and everyone to love you as much as they do now? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Honestly, it takes time. And I think it takes time on both fronts, getting to know each other, getting to see how we interact with patients, how well we communicate, what our skill level is, And so it definitely takes time. Dr. Hyman has been with us about five years now, and it took both of us some time to understand each other's approach, to see if we were on the same page, which it turns out we always are. And our approaches are a little different. So that is actually a plus because I think we complement each other and we now know who's got what strength. And it's kind of that way with our whole colorectal team. So when people mention that to me, like our students, I say it takes a while to build up that mutual respect, but I think it definitely can be there. And, and now we have a great working relationship. Wonderful. And your insight is, is why I enjoy hearing you speak so often, because you definitely have some pearls for me when you talk about earning each other's trust. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Now on to the topic of your webinar and your conference session. And I want you to talk a little bit about challenges of support garments, how to measure them, and then ultimately some issues with reimbursement because down the line, we're always thinking of money and how we're going to do the things we do. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It is a challenge. And we have a few more options on the marketplace now, which I think is interesting. At one time, I think we really had one company who manufactured a product that was I don't want to say it was hard to manage or hard to to determine what size for patient, but it took a little bit of practice. 
So I know that at least one company now has a worksheet, which has been invaluable that kind of walks us through steps. Here's what you measure. Here's how you measure it. Here's how you decide what type of garment based on the kinds that that company has. I think the challenge for me is, do we get a garment that has an opening in it or do we get one that doesn't have an opening in it? And there's no literature to guide this. I think that it is, for the most part, our clinical assessment and what we're trying to do. Because garments, I think, we can consider the indications two reasons. Reason one, we have someone who says, listen, I'm going back to my job. I'm a mechanic. I'm going to be lifting. I'm going to be bending. I lift heavy things at time. I think that I do it well, bending my knees and trying to not use all my abdominal muscles. But honestly, whenever we lift, we use our core muscles. So there's that kind of prevention group. And then there are the people who now have what we think is a reducible peristomal hernia. Other than being perhaps unsightly and small, they would like something that would keep it flatter. And so I go back and forth. Should these people have a garment with an opening in it and supporting the muscle, or should they have one without a hole? And I'm still struggling with when to order which. I think that my ileostomy patients will frequently be a little more amenable to a non-hold garment or support product because they see that when the stool comes out, it easily can be distributed up and down the length of the pouch if a garment is over it. But my colostomy patients are always worried, and I share that worry with them, that with a pasty stool, the stool would come out, wouldn't drop to the bottom of the pouch or distribute throughout the pouch, and they might have seal failures. So I'm still looking for that guidance, and it tends to be, for me, it almost makes a little more sense to have a garment without an opening in it because it equally distributes support in the entire area of the garment, especially for prevention. Now, the problem then, my patients will come back and say, okay, I get it, it's supporting it and it's concealing it, which is kind of nice. But then when I need to empty it, I have to take it off or I have to lift it up or I have to roll it up. And that might not be a problem for a person who doesn't have a hernia yet, but a person with a peristomal hernia who has to open the belt up or support garment up to empty their pouch. If, if, and I think one of the keys to wearing a support garment correctly when a person does have a peristomal hernia is that they should be putting that garment on when they're laying flat to get that hernia to reduce. And that way, when they put it on and they stand up, they have support over where the bulge or the hernia is. But now if they're in the bathroom and they have to take it off, how do they put it back in and have that stoma reduced? So there's all these kind of unknowns. And some patients will just say to me, no, that's not a problem. I just rolled the bottom of the garment up and I can empty it. And other people say, no, I got to take it off because I got to make sure everything's falling to the bottom of the pouch. So there's just issues with the type and then the measurements, especially when someone has a hernia already, the garment, as I understand it, should cover the entire area where the hernia sac is, so the bulge, if you will. And so that means from top to bottom, you need to have enough length or material to cover that. 
And is it six inches? Is it eight inches? Is it 10 inches? So I am not great at it by any means. And if I've decided that the best garment for the patient is from a company that has support, and at least one of the companies has a person who I can call and say, look, this is what I've got for my patient. What do you think? Sometimes he or she will walk me through and I'll feel a little more comfortable. Sometimes what I do is I ask the patient to call. I give them all the measurements and have them make the decision with the person as well. And then there's a couple garments that are like one size and they're a little cheaper sometimes because they're not so custom. So sometimes I'll go to the pre-made ones that really just come in two sizes, kind of depends on how long the torso is and with or without the hole. And the hole in the pre-made ones has Velcro. By the hole, I mean where the pouch would come through if we choose that. Because that's the other thing I get nervous about is on a custom-made one with an opening in it for the pouch to come through, you've got to get really close to where either the flanges or the pouch is heat sealed to the skin barrier in order to be effective. And if I'm off a little bit, that hole is either too big and some of the hernia can bulge through, or it's too small and it pinches the pouch. So I know I'm throwing a lot out there. I'm probably making people listening go, ooh, but I think the more experience and the more information we have from the companies that we work with, the better it will be. Just the other day, so it's interesting we're having this discussion. One of my patients came in with a device I had never seen before, and he went online and said to me, there's a lot of things online that relate to ostomy. And it was a support kind of garment with a hole in it. But then it also had another piece that he flipped up. So I think as WOC nurses who may be managing this patient population, one of the things we have to do is get online occasionally to see what's out there. Because I, and I bet everyone else's patients are out there looking, what else is out there? What could I try? And what would be maybe an inexpensive thing for me to try to begin with? So I'm hopeful that in the future, we'll have a lot more devices or garments or products and hopefully maybe good how to use kind of things and maybe not so expensive because you take a chance and you go, I think this is what you need. And when it costs $150 and as you mentioned, the whole reimbursement issue of as far as I know, not reimbursed. I don't think, I'm not sure that Medicare is covering it. Do you know that, Kevin? Are they covering hernia support belts? I don't know right now. Yeah, I don't actually think so. I have some people with private insurance who tell me they have gotten it reimbursed. But as a provider, I'm signing that prescription and the durable medical equipment requirements of having me sign. And for the most part, I'm not always seeing them reimbursed, which is tough because this is that whole, what do we want to do? Do we want to treat the problem after it occurs or do we want to try to prevent it? And I'd love to know that the device was something that was covered so we could try prevention because we really don't know what we should be using to prevent a peristomal hernia from occurring. Right. And oftentimes our patients with stomas wear loose clothing. There's not often a lot of pressure on their stoma. And many of our patients have the size of the stoma, the protrusion out of the skin is so variable in each patient. Have you had any people complain that about they're nervous about a solid 
hernia belt coming in contact, maybe creating friction or shearing forces, or has that not been an issue for you at all? Because maybe the pouch is helping to slide over um, the stoma due to the mucus. No one has been as specific as you are. I'm not sure they worry about sheer friction injury, although I think that's maybe the injury that could occur. Rather, they're just worried about, is the stoma going to get flattened and maybe the stool is going to go under the seal? And is it going to just not flow into the pouch readily? That's more of the questions that I get. But I think your question is high end. You kind of get what the injury could be. The biggest issue for them is a good seal. I got to get a good seal. I can't have leakage. I can't have stool going places it shouldn't go. And I don't want to use this if that's the case. So I'm not sure they worry about injury as much as, am I going to get a good seal? Is there going to be anything that's going to compromise my seal? Okay. And one of these complications that we're often dealing with are peristomal ulcers. And when they have a hernia and ulcers, we're just adding these complications on one after another after another. And we worry about that leakage and worsening ulcers. Can you talk about some problem-solving ideas to help us out who are listening and help to get those wheels turning? Yeah, I agree with you. I have a modest-sized group of patients who have peristomal hernias that can't be repaired for whatever reason, history, other disease processes, haven't had it repaired several times and it hasn't been successful and they may be unwilling to think about it. And they do at times present with a peristomal ulcer over the area that the hernia is. And I think for a lot of people, once they get a hernia, it is so important to reassess the pouching system that they're using because if they are using something that has a firm shape to it, i.e. some sort of convexity, they may be at risk for a development of a ulcer underneath that. Because if you think about it, we now have a where the opening in the muscle is, the hernia. We now have that piece of intestine pushing in and out of what people call the hernia sac. So that whole friction and shear thing that you just mentioned is really, I think, why we get those ulcers and they can be pretty deep. They can both be full thickness at times because it's rubbing against the convexity. So I think that the first thing I do once I see that someone has a hernia, even if they don't have any skin issues at that time, is to really think about why we have that person in convexity. Is it absolutely needed? And if it is, is it a convexity that we might adjust? Because one of the things we now have available to us is different levels of convexity. So I think in the past we had one. This is the type of convexity. It didn't really even have a qualifier. But now we have soft and we have light and we have flexible and we have deep. So the first thing I would do is say, do we need convexity at all? And perhaps help the patient understand why I'm worried about it and see if they're willing to get out of a convex product, which is really hard because they've had a good seal, and see if I could suggest to them if we could go to a lighter convexity, at least try it. Ask them to call the company for a few samples to give it a try before we make any commitment and see how it works. So I try very hard if we can prevent any issues, but I've seen quite a few people with ulcers now and 
Sometimes getting them out of convexity means they're just not getting a seal anymore. So then I've got to think about, okay, what can we put over that area that's shifting, that is under friction and has some shearing forces to decrease some of that? And we've been fairly successful with a non-adherent foam product. And there are many of those on the market, just cutting a piece that has the foam part that would go to the skin and then the top part that would receive the pouch would have a non kind of strike through surface so that the amount of moisture coming from where that ulcer might be would not get wet and impinge or affect the seal. That's a little tricky because when I come in the room with a piece of foam, no matter how thin it looks to me, the patient can only see an uneven thing that's going to be underneath their pouching system. So you really kind of have to walk them through. Sometimes it can be as simple as a hydrocolloid, even a thin or a thicker one. Again, just something between that surface that could take that shear and friction. Those are probably the two things I've been most successful with. But then what I find is there's always a challenge when you're healing those, if you're getting them towards healing, of them overgranulating, kind of that hypergranulation tissue that then starts to occur because it's a moist surface. And even though it's protected, we almost get there, but we have all that hypergranulation tissue. So that is a struggle too. I used to be a silver nitrate kind of clinician. Okay, we're going to put some silver nitrate on it. Then I'd have some people go, oh my gosh, it hurts. But I wouldn't see a whole lot of results. So I think in the last year or so, and we talked about this at conference last year, in one of the sessions I was in, we talked about what to do with hypergranulation tissue. And I'm not sure if this is where I picked it up or not, but we have been using some triamcinolone, a steroid. And the kind of maybe rationale of it is, you know, when you deal with people with G-tube hypergranulation tissue around a G-tube from the irritation, and we put it on there once or twice a day, and I think we've all seen really good results from that. Now we're trying that on some of these peristomal ulcers from hernias because we get them almost healed, but they just need something else. They need that next push. So we've been trying to do that somewhat successful, but I would tell you I still have a small handful of folks who continue with a little bit of skin breakdown regardless of what we do. And if it becomes a chronic wound, I get really nervous about it. And and these are the people that I eventually say, at least let's talk to the surgeon about, is there any other option that we haven't considered? And patients are always hesitant. The surgeon has one tool. They're going to offer me surgery. And But I just think it's reasonable that we all sit down and that it's kind of a group approach because I sometimes kind of meet like, this is it. I have nothing else to offer you. Because you know what? As WOC nurses, we always say, I think our, our mantra is, we look at someone with a problem no matter what it is. And before we come up with, this is the dressing or this is the pouch or this is the approach, you say, what's the reason? Let me fix the etiology if possible. And then I move to the management. And it's so frustrating with peristomal hernias because we can't fix them. And so we're, I'm often feeling like we're just kind of band-aiding it and hoping that the band-aid makes it feel better and look better and maybe heal. But that's not always the case. And I find that the frustrating part with peristomal hernias. Yeah. And those are some great ideas for us to put in our toolbox and a great segue into 
When would a surgeon, or in your experience, when you've consulted back with surgery, would they consider moving a stoma if there is a hernia? What are some of those cases where it's just like, okay, the complications are just, we can't deal with this on our own, non-surgically, here is an idea to move the stoma? Yeah. I think that when I refer someone to the surgeon, first of all, it's a joint appointment because although I feel the patient can frequently communicate what we've done, I know that the surgeon is looking for, did you look at every approach possible? And I think frequently I can communicate that in a slightly different way than the patient can. But the patient needs to communicate it well too, because part of it is frustration, can't get a consistent seal. So a pouching system seal that's inconsistent with leakage and difficulty maintaining peristomal scan. The other thing I want the patient to talk about is the aesthetics of it all. Sometimes, especially with a non-reducible hernia, and even one that can reduce it, they always seem to, at some times, start to bulge underneath clothes. And I always want the patient to talk about how difficult is it to wear the clothes they want to wear and how uncomfortable they may be because despite what other people might say to them, they'll say, oh, I got a bulge on one side or the other. I just know everyone's looking at me. So I think those are two important things that need to be communicated. And then the other issue is talking to the patient about obstructions, because we all know that certain hernias and hernia sacs can impinge or kind of catch the piece of intestine inside and pinch them. And if you really walk your patient through, was there ever any time where you felt some pain in this area and nothing came out for a few hours, and you felt a little nauseous or crampy, and then suddenly something came out. Because I think patients always think of obstruction as, boom, nothing comes out. Nothing comes out forever, and now it's eight hours, and I have to rush to the hospital. And don't kind of realize that a partial obstruction over many months, several times, is a problem. So when we talk to the surgeon, we talk about all of those things. And I always review the patient's history and physical just to know Could they have surgery? And if we're looking at pretty major surgery, because frequently it's moving the stoma to the other side, which still has reoccurrence rates, but not as bad as as a local uh, revision, are they someone whose surgery is really an option? Do they have some respiratory or cardiac issues that would make them at high risk for surviving a surgery? So we put all those things together, and I know that's what the surgical group is going to ask that I work with, and that's kind of what we've already kind of worked through when we put it all together. And they'll look at me, and I'll look at them, and we'll look at the patient, and we'll finally say, we have tried everything we possibly can, and quality of life is at issue here. And that's from the patient perspective, and especially if they can report one or two obstructive symptoms, we don't want it to become an emergent thing, where suddenly they're on vacation in Hawaii and suddenly they have no output and they have terrific pain and they're on the outer island that has no one to operate on them. We can't put people in that. We can't put people there. So it's kind of collective. And I think all those things need to be said to the surgeon and then we need to see what options would be. Now, the one thing that I maybe didn't talk about was I think as clinicians, both surgeons and WSC nurses, we believe that probably obesity is a risk factor for development. Now, there's, I think, other risk factors too. And what I will see the surgical team say to the patient is, I do think that we need to do a surgical repair, but at your current weight, you are at risk for reoccurrence. 
And what can you do to start to reduce your weight? And consider referral to our nutrition group if we believe that putting them on a weight reduction program is going to work. Or we've had, again, another handful, not a lot, of patients that we refer to our bariatric surgical team to see if they can have reduction in weight because this is someone who's always been overweight, has tried everything they possibly can, and may need to consider having weight reduction surgery so that we've taken away one of the important risk factors for reoccurrence if the stoma's moved. Mm. When you speak about this particular scenario and or scenarios in general, working in academia, we're always talking about the evidence-based practice model. And I just can't help but to think that the words you're saying reflect exactly what we're trying to accomplish with evidence-based practice. That is utilizing the best available research that's out there, whatever that may be, but using clinician expertise and patient and family values in the context of the setting. You just described that exactly, and which is why I think our WOC nurses really excel because they are advanced nursing practice. Not everyone's an advanced practice nurse, but it really is advanced nursing practice. And if anyone out there is guessing, well, I don't follow this and I don't follow that, just listen to you talk and it is the heart of evidence-based practice. Wow. So you make it sound much more important than I guess I considered and I bet (laughs) many of my colleagues consider it too. So that's great feedback. I've never thought of it that way, but I will in the future. It's second nature to you. And I think it really is second nature to a lot of WOC nurses, but the greatest research in the world isn't going to work with someone who falls outside of that perfect box and whose values and preferences are not aligned with whatever that may be. We always are heal, heal, heal this. We have to heal everything, but maybe it's symptomatology and quality of life that drives where we're going in that particular patient population. And so it makes me smile. I know you can't see me smiling here, but (laughs) it's really a great thing because it's what drives our profession. And that's exactly what we should be doing. And you described it to a T. As we start to wrap things up, if you're teaching a new WC nurse or working with new WC nurses and they're caring for people with peristomal hernias, what are some pearls you would like to communicate to that new nurse or someone who may not be familiar with working with this? Well, I think it comes down to our basic skills of assessment. I think that every patient who has a stoma is at risk for peristomal hernia formation. One of my colleagues always says, look, this is a surgeon. I really made a peristomal hernia because I made a hole in their muscle. And isn't that what a hernia is? So remembering that in our practice, I think, is really important because we should be looking at our patients and assessing the area around the stoma, even when there's no impairment in the skin. So looking, feeling, standing our patients up, laying them down, looking for any change, because in larger patients, it may be harder to see that maybe there is a hardly perceptible bulge in that area and kind of palpating all the way around. I think we probably don't use touch as much as we could in our practice, but touching that area around the stoma, having a person cough while our hands are in that area just to see if we see anything 
that on this side feels different than that side. And that's going to be something that we're going to watch and, and be sure about. So I'm just in the outpatient clinic. And when I'm there, my patients want to jump on the table and pull their shirt up and get to business. And I always say, okay, yeah, yeah, but sit next to me first and let's talk. And maybe while you're sitting there, this is the time for you to show me how things look while you're sitting so I can see in a sitting position as opposed to laying on the exam table or kind of a 30-degree lay if there's any bulge in that area. Because I think that that assessment is key, especially while they have their clothes on so we can see what's happening. Now, I remember saying this at conference, and I think that someone was like, whoa. So I feel very comfortable, and I realize I've been doing this a long time, doing a digital exam of a stoma. And for those people who aren't, they may want to work with a surgeon to see if they would feel comfortable and kind of get that geography of what you feel when you do a digital exam. But one of the things that my surgical team has taught me over the years is you can, in many of our patients, feel the fascial ring. So remember, we got a ring of tissue as we go into the stoma at the stoma skin junction. It's usually scar tissue. Could be a little snug, usually not. And then if there's not too much tissue between the skin and the muscle, you get to the muscle. And if you ask the patient to cough, suddenly you'll feel a tightening around your finger. And someone who has a hernia, when they cough and you kind of jiggle your finger to feel that ring, you may not feel a complete ring. So I think those of us who do it a lot and have had a good mentor who can help us learn that, that is invaluable because if you think about it, there's two classifications of hernias. So one is that the fascial defect is too large, the one that they made already is enlarged on one side, stretched out. But there's also what they call that sliding hernia or subcutaneous hernia, where as your finger goes in, instead of going straight down, it goes to the left and then it goes to the right and then you get to the fascia. So there's a piece of intestine that slides in and out between those two layers. And that finding I think is significant because although it gives them a bulge, it is something that potentially could be fixed by just having local revision of the stoma, i.e. disconnecting the stoma, pulling up the redundancy and refashioning the stoma. And if it's a problem enough, again, of that whole assessment, is it a quality of life problem? That usually doesn't give people a obstruction because it can slide in and out. But knowing at least if it goes underneath the skin before it goes into the fascia is important. So I do think that that digital exam, once someone feels comfortable, is an important assessment piece that I try to teach my students when they come, if we have that experience while they're there. So it's the other thing that I would recommend. And then one thing we didn't talk about, we're starting to see at least, I think, one product now with a con, how would I say, concave adhesive versus a convex adhesive with the thinking of being able to put it on that kind of wraps around a bulge instead of sitting on top of it. I have not a lot of experience with it, so I can't speak to it, but it is certainly something I'm keeping in my toolbox and saying, I think I may need to give that a try on a few people because the outer footprint's a little bigger and it kind of can wrap around maybe the hernia. So I think that would be the other thing that I would tell a new clinician or someone who's just starting to assess patients with hernias to consider that product might be something that we might need to be using on our patients. 
Jan, those are wonderful ideas. And as usual, your insight in clinical practice has really enlightened me. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners feel like they've learned something. So thank you very much for sharing your time with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.